Welcome to MediaPath. I'm Fritz Coleman. And I am Louise Polanker. Here on MediaPath, we like to turn you on to interesting new ways to spend your valuable spare time. Everything from newly released films to TV to series to podcasts and books to things like where to get a list of Justice Clarence Thomas's favorite vacation spots that you can't afford. All this builds toward the highlight of our show, interesting guests that we admire, and we've got two today, Bobby Columby and John Scheinfeld. I hope I'm pronouncing that right, John. Am I, am I in the ballpark there? No. Uh, <laughs> Bobby is the drummer Swing for one of the miss. world's iconic bands, Blood, Sweat, and Tears. John is the writer, director, and producer of a fascinating new film about bs called What the Hell Happened to Blood, Sweat, and Tears? This is not your typical rock doc that you find on Access TV, behind the scenes with Guns N' Roses. This is an amazing story about the Cold War, Vietnam, Richard Nixon, the Iron Curtain, and the political divide in America in the 60s and 70s, and where Blood, Sweat, and Tears fits into all of this. I'll make a bet that you've never heard this story before. It is fascinating, really wonderful, and I can't wait to talk about it. But first, we have to brag, you know, because who, who's going to? Let's brag, Fritz. All right. It's a well-known fact that we have the best listeners in the world, and we're so glad that we're able to mention and thank more and more parts of the planet, specifically with each passing week. As of last month, all of North America has officially hopped onto the media path when we added Mexico to the countries where we're charting, already having done so in the U.S in Canada. Last week, we hit the Apple podcast charts in Ireland, Austria, and the Philippines in both the arts and the books category. Well, those We're are not countries yeah, with the finest of tastes. Uh, we want to thank our wonderful fans, listeners, and guests for helping us get to this point. A quick reminder that you will find our show with additional visual elements on YouTube at youtube.com slash at mediapathpodcast. Wherever you find us, we're just glad you're here. We do so appreciate you. And if you look forward to your weekly stroll with us down the media path, please take a moment to subscribe and like our video or give us five stars on Apple Podcasts. We'll make it easier for others to come across our content and widen your circle of media path friends. So Fritz... I have a good one this week. I'm going to talk about a two-part documentary about private investigator Anthony Pelicano. Bobby, do you have a story about Anthony? Yeah, Pelicano? actually, I do. <laughs> Great. This is great. Well, it's called Sin Eater, The Crimes of Anthony Pelicano. Sin Eater is what he called himself. He'd like to say he ate the sins of his clients. Now, if you're a fan of Ray Donovan, the Showtime series about the fixer that doesn't let law get in the way of his work, Anthony Pelicano was supposed to be the model for that character. This is an FX documentary found on Hulu. Pelicano was a private investigator who was notorious for using illegal tactics for and on many of the highest-ranking Hollywood players. The first of the two hours is about his rise in the 90s to become the go-to guy for higher-up Hollywood people that needed some help making a problem go away. The second hour is his downfall, including what got him jailed for 17 years. It's big money, it's celebrity scandal, it's illegal espionage. He was involved in the Michael Jackson case, the Gary Shandling Brad Gray suit, Chris Rock's domestic problems. There are interviews with reporters and victims. This is actually a scary subplot, and that is Anita Bush, who was a reporter who wrote something Pelicano didn't like, and she was immediately victimized by a campaign of terror. 
including the mafia-style dead fish on the windshield of her car maneuver. Bush was so traumatized, she gave up journalism completely. The most compelling material is taped phone calls between Pelicano and the Hollywood bigwigs who need his help. Do what you need to do, but don't tell me what you're doing. That kind of a thing. This is a a bit of dark mafia-style honor that Pelicano did with his dealings. He got 17 years in prison because he would not identify any of his clients. He was not a rat. We Americans have been spending a lot of time lately wondering whether our politicians are above the law. This series will make you wonder if the Hollywood elite are above the law. Did you like this? Oh, I loved it. I think a certain element of every society in every country is above the law, for sure. I think there's folks getting away with all kinds of crazy shit. Uh, Excuse me, I don't usually curse. Uh, Fritz, but you know, Fritz and I... (laughs) Little known uh, Hollywood fact, Fritz and I were both witnesses at the Michael Jackson trial, and I, my phone was clicking, <laughs> like before cell phones, right? My, my phone was clicking yeah. during that time period. We testified for the prosecution in that case because we knew the family in the uh, Gavin Arviso case. And we, we, we were there to, uh, we, we sort of adopted them. Uh, as a family, we we both were instructors at the Laugh Factory comedy camp in the summer, which was for underserved kids. And the Arvizo family, Gavin was the oldest of three siblings. No, he's the middle. Of uh, the middle of the Dave three. Dave the oldest. And, uh, and uh, they were spectacular, all three kids. But we adopted them for Christmas and bought them Christmas gifts and took, took them down to their house and got to see how they live and what they were like. And so we had nothing but positive things to say about the Arvizos. And uh, the defense tore us apart like a bad piece of fish. It was terrible. But we, that, that, that's why we were interested in Anthony Pelicano. Go ahead, sorry. Oh, yeah, no, I, I, I was just going to say, I, I think that there's fixers all throughout the world fixing things. I don't think anything changes no matter what the law tries to adjust for, you know, these types of abnormalities within a society. But I I think there's people who, like a Donald Trump, for example, who in order to ever have to have any sort of accountability, he's got to be as high profile, profile as the president. If he had just kind of like maneuvered along where he was before he ran for president, he would have continued breaking laws left and right, not playing, not paying contractors. I heard he didn't pay a surgeon who operated on his child. I mean, the guy just he did what he pleased. Business is business, Weezy. <laughs> All right. So I'm going to be recommending The Anarchists. What makes a six-part HBO documentary miniseries a good fit for today's show with the blood, sweat, and tears story is that The Anarchist deals with our efforts as humans to devise a more perfect society. We think of anarchy as chaos because of the foundational cracks it provides for trouble and terror. Anarchists are in search of a uh, anarchists are in search of total freedom. But can we ever be truly free without boundaries? Freedom from fear and danger we require protections against the vagaries of human behaviors, tendencies, anomalies, whims, and weaknesses. Any and every perfect plan through the ages has been preyed upon by those seeking power, control, money, and the manipulation of others in furtherance of a selfish agenda. Health requires fortification. A pure anarchic ideology can and has devolved rapidly into lawlessness, autocracy, and fear-based authoritarianism pitting desperate and starving citizens against their neighbors. But the concept is so captivating that it continues to resurface. In 2015, a Canadian entrepreneur slash provocateur, I would love to have that on my business card. Who wouldn't, right? (laughs) 
named Jeff Berwick summoned self-governance idealists to a conference in Mexico that he called Anarchapulco. The goal was to promote a pure form of anarchy, focusing on absolute individual self-rule and the absence of government. The event drew high-profile libertarians, fugitives, and families seeking to unschool their children, along with cryptocurrency advocates attracted to the concept of creating a stateless community free from governments and central banking systems. All sounds rosy in theory. In practice, the shitstorm rolls in when broy crypto douche. <laughs> I can't say that without laughing. All sounds rosy in theory. In practice, the shitstorm rolls in when broy crypto douches party till dawn and a troubled loner aims his rage at open hearted idealists, culminating in murder. The Anarchist is directed by Todd Schramke. It's a six part uh, documentary series on HBO. That sounds cool. I didn't even know that existed. I want to get to these guests. I'm so happy to have these guys here. I have so many questions. Bobby Columby is the man driving the bus in Blood, Sweat, and Tears. He was their amazing drummer. John Scheinfeld is an award-winning documentary filmmaker. He did a film about one of my friends, Gary Marshall, The Happy Days of Gary Marshall. He did docs about Herb Alpert, Sergio Mendez, Bing Crosby, John Lennon, Harry Nielsen. And one of my favorites, I told him about earlier, Chasing Train, the story of John Coltrane. Really helps you to make a sense of this very enigmatic musical genius. He's uh, also written, directed, and produced What the Hell Happened to Blood, Sweat, and Tears. The brilliance of this film is that it's such a snapshot of a tumultuous time in American history. And I don't think many people know this story. I just want to do some background for the kids who are a little younger. Bobby, excuse me, who may not know the whole scoop on blood, sweat and tears. They were a jazz rock band founded in New York City in 1967. They incorporated rock and pop and R&B and soul and big band. Their second and third albums were number one of the Billboard charts. Their second winning a Grammy Award for album of the year beating out Abbey Road by the Beatles, which is just mind-blowing. We're so happy to have you guys here. We're both, I have to speak for John on this one, <laughs> we're both extremely happy to be here, aren't we, John? Yes, Bobby. <laughs> See? <laughs> All right, so Bobby, Blood, Sweat, and Tears, I mean, there were three bands that came out with the brass sound simultaneously. What? Yeah, were there, there really? Were well, um, the ones that were that broke into the top forty with their music were you, BSNT, Chicago, and the Electric Flag with a great drummer, Buddy Miles. So, what gives BSNT this beautiful, sophisticated pop was that I think most of the horn players had a background in jazz. Is that correct? Give me the background of everybody. I know, uh, you know, the, you don't know. Do we have time? But. Uh, uh, you know, uh, Steve was from um, uh, the Blues Project, which I was a fan of, and Al Cooper uh, was a fan. But most of those guys, the horn players, had their had their chops in jazz. Is that right? Mm -hmm. That's absolutely right. Um, should I go yeah, on? Yeah, go with ahead. It? Go ahead. I'll tell you when to stop. Go. I'm, uh, I'm going to go get a sandwich. Go ahead. <laughs> you know, can I have a bite of that? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Anyway, um, um, I'm so, just going to stop you for a moment and say when you're looking at each other, please tilt your head around the microphone. Since we're sitting so close together, the mics are super directional. We don't want to bleed oh, into each other. So yeah. even if you're looking at Fritz, you know, pivot. I'll edit this part out. But. Please. Okay. Pivot. Don't pull a muscle, but pivot if you can. <laughs> <laughs> That's very good. Anyway, so um, I come from a, a family where... Um, I have two older brothers, 16 and 17 years older than I am. One, uh, the oldest was Jules Columbia. He was a self-taught trumpet player, jazz trumpet player, 
loved jazz, was hanging around. He was a producer. He was an A&R guy in the jazz world. And one of his best friends is this guy you may have heard of named Miles Davis. My other brother, Harry Columbia, was a high school teacher. And, and part of what he did is, um, besides being a high school teacher, he managed Thelonious Monk for 14 years. Holy cow. Also Michael Keaton for his whole career. Wow. So anyway, um, so I grew up with Bach and Beethoven in my living room, really. Mm-hmm. And so all I heard was jazz, and I loved the music so much, everything about it. Uh, and I couldn't understand why anyone was interested in pop music. It, it, it just was, it sounded so lame to me, so simple, there was no adventure to it. Anyway, so, but I realized, um, how much room do I have in terms of language? Well, I think I just said shit twice. Can I go further than shit? Yeah. I won't. No, you can. I, I, I no, it's fine. I, I, I don't want to stop. It gives me goosebumps. I don't want to. Anyway, to negate all the forty years when I was in TV when I couldn't say it. I, I know, just, exactly. When somebody says HBO, fuck, help me. Thing, I just love yeah. it. Yeah, it's great. So, um, you don't get laid playing jazz. Right. <laughs> if you're a young white musician, mm-hmm. uh, you start to hang out in places where you might, and that would be. Greenwich Village. And I was going to City College in New York. I was going for a graduate degree in psychology. But I could play drums because that's what I started doing. I taught myself because everyone in my family was doing something musical except me. And I just started to bang on stuff. It's hard to believe you don't read. Yeah. Wow. Music. Music. I mean, I know. I know. Come on. You can read books, Fritz. I know. Oh, my God. I, I know that. Quickly, too. Evelyn really? Wood style. Oh, wow. Anyway, so, so back to the story. Um, I started to combine my friends. In other words, my jazz playing friends, young, great, great players, and some of the less great players, but more understanding of the music business players, like Al Cooper and Steve Katz. And I was just hanging around the village and hanging around with, with, with Steve, mainly because he was my f- pal, and um, ultimately, I had an idea to have a band where I would combine all the things about pop music that I would like, nice songs, great you know, presentation, girls, and then on the other side, really good musicians that could play solos and, and um, instead of the whiny guitar solo on every single song. And so that was the concept. But Al Cooper was leaving the United States, and he heard me play and asked if I would join him uh, for a fundraiser for him <laughs> so uh, he could go to Europe and be a producer. Just like it. a pre-internet GoFundMe thing? Absolutely. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. So uh, anyway, he and Steve hated each other mm. because they were in the Blues Project together, and apparently that didn't work out. So, But I was friends with Steve. So I said to Al, be nice if Steve played too. Hey, he won't play with you. Yeah, he will. Don't be an idiot. Steve said, nah, he won't want me. It'll Anyway, so I kind of put him back together. And here we were as a quartet. He found a, a great bass player by the name of Jim Fielder. And the four of us played for a weekend at the Cafe Oh Go Go mm-hmm. on Bleecker Street across from the Bitter End. And uh, we played. He didn't make a nickel. 
because uh, unfortunately it was not a successful run. Um, but he had a couple really, really good pop songs that I thought would work great for the band that I was hoping to start. And Steve, after the Blues Project, I was afraid he wouldn't have another job. So I, I figured he could be in this band that I was with. It was not going to be a guitar-centric band to begin with. So um, I'm down in, in D.C. I'm playing with Odetta. And I asked Steve to call Al up and ask if we could use some of the songs that he had that we, you know, that I really liked for this new band that we we're going to put together. And Steve calls back and he says, Al says, yes, and I'm about to hang up. He goes, no, no, wait. And he wants to be in the band. He wants to be the, the, the singer. And now I'm not as excited as I was a minute ago. And says, <laughs> and he wants to be the leader. And we have a gig. And it's called Bloodswood. And I remember writing down the name thinking, what a silly name this is. Bloodswood. Seriously. Okay, then. And that was it. And Al took it ran with it, got us a record. This is all stuff I never could have done in my lifetime. He got everyone involved. He got he hyped everyone into it. We had a an engagement opening for the James Cotton Blues Band. Mm, holy cow. At at a theater that became the Fillmore East. So that was the beginning of this band. Now the short version. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> so, well, it, it's. Uh, I'm, I just want to comment on what, what he yeah. said. Yeah. And then you, you have a question. Uh, I think it was. I, I think it taught American youth sort of. It sort of gently introduced them to jazz and how horns play together and the rhythms of it. That was the purpose. Yeah. For me, being a, a jazz crusader in my own way, and mm. I had two older brothers that felt the same way. If anyone could, if we could introduce people to the idea that you don't have to have four musicians to be a rock band, you could do all kinds of different things. And once you have, you, you add four horns, you can't just say, okay, everyone, let's play. You have to, you have to arrange the music. And it was, it was uh, anytime someone would say to me, even to this day, because of you guys, I listen to Miles or even Prokofiev or anyone, that's a win. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, I just wanted to say that, you know, since Bobby <clears throat> arrived, the, there's a new parlor game in town. It's more fun than uh, Six Degrees of, of Kevin <laughs> Bacon. What you do is you put Bobby in the center of the room and then you say the name of anyone in entertainment and then Bobby tells a story. Try me. About no, that. Kidding, I, uh, I call him Zelig. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> He's been everywhere at every important time and knows everybody important. And they're all really true and great stories. I love it. Okay, so maybe we'll have Mason say, Mason, you can look around the room and, and name anybody on the wall. <laughs> no astronauts. No, <laughs> you don't have a Neil Armstrong story. Oh, Neil, that's different. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Bill Murray. Bill Murray. I don't actually have a Bill Murray story. All right, I'll I, go. I, I, no, I, I do, but it's not. Okay, Richard, I could do a book. Okay. So Richard and I... Okay, so I meet Richard. I'm sorry, you know, I don't want to do this. Is it Richard Marx? about a movie. Is it a Richard Marx story? Yeah. Okay, let's go. All right, you asked for it. Yeah, I did. You can edit it out. No, it's live. Okay, anyway. <laughs> so I'm in Vancouver. I get a call from a fellow named David Foster. He said, listen, Bobby, can you come up to Vancouver? There's a songwriters conference, whatever it is, and it, it'd be great if you could be on the panel. I said, sure. So I'm in Vancouver. Afterwards, we go have dinner. And he's with Wayne Gretzky and this kid, Richard Marks. Mm -hmm. 
and the four of us are having dinner. And Rich is funny, nice kid. I like him. I said, so Rich, where do you live? He goes, Westwood. I said, I live in Westwood. Let me have your number. He's such a sweet kid. Okay, so I have tickets to Laker games. So one day I call Richard. I said, what are you doing? He says, oh, you called. I said, yeah, yeah, let's go to a Laker game. <laughs> so we go to a Laker game. And I said, what's your story? He said, well, I'm a songwriter. And uh, I've been trying to get a you know, record deal. I mean, this, you know what? This story could go on for hours, but I'm going to try my do, best. Do the cliff notes for Yeah, I'm, I'm going to try, but it's hard. Anyway, uh, I'm the best man at his wedding. I was this kid's godfather. I mean, I can go on for a long on this. So you know him. You know him. Yeah, yes, I do know him. So anyway, um, I said, so, so, so what are you up to? He said, well, I'm trying to get a record deal. I can't get a record deal. I said, you may have sent me a tape. What are you sending out? And he plays it for me, and I realized there's songs that he wrote for, you know, Kenny Rogers, Olivia Newton-John. I said, yeah, but they don't reflect who you are. And I, I bring him in front of a mirror, and I said, okay, this actor just walked onto a scene. What's the music? That's what you need to write, something for this guy. And he starts to write these songs. And they're much more dead on. And he has letters from almost every record company, one that said, you're a great singer, you're a great songwriter, but you're not an artist. I mean, just some like really lame responses. And I said, I can help you with this. You taught him to hold on to the night. Well, actually, I made sure that that was, I had said to him, this is your first number one single. I did predict that and told him, don't use drums until the out course. Just do a shaker at the beginning and then you know, Phil Collins. The way I see it, he owes you money, my friend. Hmm? He owes you money the way I see it. Well, we're... I think he has a lot of money. He is Richard Marks. Well, yeah. anyway, so so, so I helped him get a record deal. Wow. I helped the guy that signed him get his job. And wow. it goes on and on and on. So it's a long story. I, I want to get John just before he dozes yeah. off here. Yeah, yeah, I know. Yeah. Please. So, John, this is a fascinating <laughs> story about the first American rock and roll band that played behind the Iron Curtain. Talk about this film. What drew you to it? And uh, just explain generally the arc of what went on there in these three or four Iron Curtain countries. Sure. Well, it's all Bobby's fault. <laughs> he uh, he had called me two months before COVID hit and said, uh, I want to take you to lunch. Uh, I have a story I want to tell you. We didn't know. We, we'd met once before. He had seen my Chasing Train film and liked it. And uh, So we go to lunch, and I, I'm telling him how much I love the band, Blood, Sweat, and Tears. And literally, I said to him, what the hell happened to Blood, Sweat, and Tears? Here you guys were, one of the biggest bands going, and then you weren't. What happened? And he said, that's the story I'm going to tell you. And he gave me the uh, rough outline of this story. But um, there are nine guys in Blood, Sweat, and Tears, and not any one guy knew every single point uh, of the story line. And, uh, but I'm sitting there with Bobby saying, wow, I've never heard this story before. This is just really fascinating. And, and Fritz, the description you gave at the beginning of the podcast here is so right on the money in terms of what we're about. I didn't want to do a music documentary. I wanted to do a political thriller. And that's what this is. Oh, it absolutely With is. all these other mm -hmm. elements. And so um, the first thing I, I always ask myself when I'm starting a film is, what's the story? Is it, is it compelling enough? Is it strong enough? Does it have enough layers that it's worthy of being on a big screen? 
And this one absolutely did. I sort of could see where we could go without knowing all the details. The second question, though, is do we have the audiovisual assets to tell this story properly? And this was our biggest challenge. Bobby, in the middle of this lunch, just kind of drops in casually, oh, yeah, you know, there was a documentary film crew with us. I was like, excuse me? Hello. That's super helpful. <laughs> there's, a, there's film on this? Um, and we have to find this. And so I took some time because uh, my feeling was if, if we couldn't find this film, we couldn't really tell the story. So we looked everywhere. The production company that m shot the film went bankrupt in 1970. The post-production house in Hollywood that where everything physically was for a while went bankrupt the next year. And so here we are 52 years later, you know, trying to come in and find the trail of all this material. And it was really hard. We checked Every independent storage facility that had film in, in L.A. and New York, we checked government facilities in Washington and Virginia. Nothing, 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 nothing. Did you, um, did you check um, Mar-a-Lago? Uh, you know, we didn't. Uh, I'm so sorry. I probably should have thought it was there with all those other classified things, <laughs> you know. Absolutely right. But the, but the band had hired this documentary film crew to follow them around. That's right. No? No, the manager did. Goldblatt did. Okay. Their manager did. Mm -hmm. So... Um, <laughs> I get a call one day from a woman named Dee Dee Dreyer, who is my hero, and she ran a vault in Hollywood. And we had been to her once before, and there was nothing in the computer database. Uh, but she was home during COVID, and she had nothing to do one day, and she pulled out a couple of loose-leaf binders of stuff that used to be in the vault. And there on one of the pages was some vague reference to blood, sweat, and tears. Oh and she went into the vault. And in a far corner, in a stack of stuff that was marked for destruction, <gasps> so did we get there at the right time or not, uh, were two prints of a short version of the documentary that never got released. They had done a short version for TV, and that never got released. And these prints had been sitting there since 1971. Armed with that, I went to Bobby and said, okay, we can now make this film. So went out. Uh, with Bobby's great help, we, we, we got the money and we started uh, during COVID. Uh, but the notion was always the political aspects of this that happened to have music at the center of it. Really unbelievable. And, uh, and just to, to put it in broad terms, uh, as sort of a cultural exchange program, the government don't I'm, – I'm looking at you now because I don't want you to shake your head. If I miss – if I misstate something, you'll let me know. It was a cultural exchange that they wanted blood, sweat, and tears to go, and not everybody in the band wanted to go, particularly Steve Katz, who was the most radical leftist of all, but you were sort of forced to go, and the fulcrum of this being forced to go was David Clayton Thomas and his green card, correct? So you were forced to go on this tour, the first tour behind the Iron Curtain. By and an American. By an American band. rock and roll band. And and and, uh, and this was going to be a great cultural exchange thing, but it was it was it was not all fun and games. Well, it wasn't uh, for sure. But what this ended up being, what we discovered, we found a lot of declassified State Department documents that were able to fill in a lot of what Bobby and the band members didn't know of what was going on behind the scenes. But yes, it all started with David, and it ended up being a quid pro quo where, uh, to use a, a Mar-a-Lago term, um, <laughs> it was a quid pro quo where if the band went on this tour for the State Department, they would make David's immigration problems go away. And it sort of started off as a win-win for both sides. The band would have 
the problem go away and they could now continue to record and, and, and perform in this country. And the State Department gets one of the hottest bands in the world out there putting forth the message of America and, and all the good things that are America. They could have never gotten blood, sweat, and tears to do this under other circumstances. So it started off as a win-win, but it's when the band came home. No, I want to talk about that. That, that breaks my heart, really. Uh, uh, but uh, So the three major places you went were Romania... Yugoslavia and Poland. And Yugoslavia and Poland. And and uh, what was the hardest one? Romania, I'm guessing. It seemed like from the story that Romania was the oddest the reaction. Hardest how? Um, was it that the audience didn't get you because they had not been exposed to Western culture? Well, um, we've never had a problem playing in front of an audience. Uh, we, we I explained this to someone uh, recently. I said, you know, when you going to a, a, a track and then someone shows you every horse is going to win and like that day it's a kind of a nice feeling and that's what it felt like being on stage with this band because that audience would we knew they were going to react we were very good live at that time most bands were not as good as their records we were actually better live so um it was fun but each one of these countries had a different form of communism and socialism uh, uh, for example, the first stop at, uh, in Zagreb in Yugoslavia, that was really a socialistic state more than anything else. They, they felt the um, uh, foot of Russia on their neck, but it wasn't that, that uh, deep. Romania was unbelievable. That was communism at its worst, a dictatorship. It was, uh, they were people that, Never heard of blood, sweat, and tears, but they saw freedom, and they saw, and they saw, and they thought maybe this is a sign that things are going to open up a little bit for us. So we came in and played, and they didn't know our name, but they just kept chanting USA, USA, and it got louder, and that was their way to express that they wanted that freedom. And the police came in, which you'll the see. The reaction really scared the powers that be, oh, right? Absolutely. Well, it was yeah. like you were being asked to thread a really delicate needle. We yeah. want people to like you, but not too much. And then the other side of that coin was it was almost as if you were sent in there to learn what communism really looked like in practice and then come back and report to Americans that our way of life is... That was not the case at all, yeah, But that's in the State Department memos. Yeah, but we did not... That wasn't feel, their mandate. That wasn't... We were actually shocking, shockingly. John even said, it's amazing that the FBI didn't do any vetting of this band because anyone on the East Coast under 30 was terribly against Nixon the war in Vietnam, we were all, you know, flower people, you know, and we were mm -hmm. all flower power against the war, uh, um, against Nixon. And it wasn't a secret. And not that we use this as a marketing shtick for the band, but it was, I mean, that's how we all felt. And they let us go there and, and we came back and we were shocked. Well, all three countries, as I was saying before, completely different. The, the most uh, tragic of the three really was 
was Romania. The people were paranoid. If they saw an American on the street, if you just walked by and went like this and you had long hair, they had to report to the police that someone had said hello to them. Now, if they didn't, there was a good chance their mother would turn them in. This is how insane it was. And, and then Poland was completely different because they had an underground where there was freedom and they expressed themselves in film and music and everything else, but it was underground. But what they displayed was very vanilla so that like, the Russians wouldn't come in. Did anybody recognize your music from like Radio Luxembourg or? In Poland for sure, mm -hmm. underground. Mm -hmm. Wow. Um, in Romania, absolutely not. Yeah. And in Yugoslavia, I don't really know. I, I think so. I'm, I'm, I mean, were, from Radio Free Europe, Voice of America, yeah. that kind of thing. Yeah. But yeah. these three countries were not like luck of the draw. Let's just go to three countries. Yeah. Uh -huh. State mm -hmm. Department had an agenda here. Yeah, and, and I want to hear. Yeah, please, please, because sure. I, it's so confusing on on first watch. I need to watch the film again because you're not sure what what that agenda is on the part of both countries, the country where you're playing and our country with you guys as tools, which is the tragedy here. So what was the State Department hoping to get out of this? What they were hoping to do was create uh, an opening for a relationship with um, Eastern European countries so that they could perhaps pull them a little bit away from the Russian orbit. Uh. And they felt that the dictators of these three countries were strong enough, independent enough, that they could move a little bit without Russia doing what they did in 1968 to Czechoslovakia, where the Czechs tried to liberalize their entire society and the Russians came rolling in with tanks. That sounds familiar. Doesn't it, though? Uh. <laughs> sort of like we're sitting in the editing room and we're watching the, this footage of, of 68 in Prague, and it's like it's like Ukraine uh, with the Russian tanks rolling in. So, so for, you know, for any of these right-wing people who like to uh, admire Putin and, and think he's a pretty good guy, what Bobby was describing about life in Romania, that's what life is like in Russia. And these are mm -hmm. just foolish people who look at a man like that and think, ah, I, I more I, of him. You, you, you took away it, the third act of this thing, which is heartbreaking but so enlightening, is that when you came back, because of where Americans' attitudes uh, was about the Vietnam War, they, they deemed you sellouts. And you came back understanding if somebody would have just listened to you and not judged what you had to say, people would have learned that you learned, oh, my God, this is a great country. You have no idea what repression is like. No, that's actually not the no? case. We came back and said we are still effed up here. We have racism Nixon oh, okay. is, is insane. Yeah. This war has to stop in Vietnam. However, if any of you think that communism is a better plan, yeah, that's you're out of your say. fucking minds. Yeah. There's a lot yeah. of healthy space between Nixon and communism. It's called, <laughs> it's called yeah. balance. Yeah, and I think one of the great emotional arcs about that topic is Steve Katz, because Steve Katz was the radical left-wing guy. And then, at least at the very end, now tell me if I'm wrong. He's, he, now no. you're no, but he I mean, he was really he was he was outspoken the about most it. Most outspoken, for and, sure. And then when he got over there, um, he realized that it didn't matter because you were bringing such joy to these people. He's right. You were entertaining these people, and there's sort of a cosmic gift in that. Forget the politics. But they saw freedom. Yeah. You, what I noticed. And I told John this, I said, it, it felt like I was playing drums and there were bars, like a prison bars in front of me. And there are the Romanian people. And then as, as the concert went on, they sort of disappeared. 
and the people got closer and they just felt this is what freedom is. This means you can say and do what you want. That's what you said in the film. You said when they looked at the stage, they saw freedom, which yeah. I thought was very powerful. That's true. And then uh, the the um, the fact that there was another, I don't know who made the comment. It might have been in the narration or something. But uh, it was said that um, these people were not used to having uncontrolled response to things. No, David said David that. said they had to temper their response because being too enthusiastic represented anarchy and then they're going to bring in the dogs. Did you guys ever get sniffed out by the dogs and everything when they brought the dogs in there? No, and I had, and I had liver in my pocket the whole trip. <laughs> it was amazing. It didn't happen. You know, these countries are all about repression and fear. Mm -hmm. And what they saw with these kids who were so excited by this music was we can't control them. They're not afraid of it's us primal. at this moment. It's mm -hmm. primal. It's primal. So we had to send the dogs in. But to finish answering your question, Louise, the, the agenda from the other countries were if they could become a little bit more friendly and have a relationship with the United States, maybe they get some of that U U.S. foreign aid. Okay. So there was a, a, a feelings on both sides that this would sort of work out. Do they vet any lyrics or any content? Not a thing. And that's shocking. Mm -hmm. I, actually, John said the same thing, that you would have thunk that the FBI yeah. and, and, you know, would have said, wait, but before we send anyone over there. But I will tell you this. What I noticed in dealing with the State Department folks, they were left of center. They were not fans of Nixon. Uh, Elliot Richardson, that group, yeah. they were not fans. Yeah. And okay. so they were not, you know, the, the entire uh, um, country was not, I mean, sure. the entire government was not, in 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 step with each other. Yeah, that's a that's a really important point yeah. because it, it, it's the same at any point in U.S. history, yep. <laughs> even when Trump was president. You know, there were a lot of people in different agencies going hair on fire. What you know? How do we hang on to what our purpose is and continue doing it? And part of the problem here that the band encountered was that um, the goal was detente. Mm -hmm. And yet the film crew captured some stuff on film that might have undercut the efforts to create this relationship. With the and that's and also one of the problems that uh, the band encountered when they came back home is that, uh-oh, there's something on this film. We, we may not want this that's film to come out. That's a great point of drama in the film. Talk about that, how you guys hid the real film and sort of faked <laughs> them out. That's really wonderful. Uh, well, you know, what's really interesting, uh, Bobby didn't know anything about that story. Most of the band Better didn't know anything about the story. The filmmaker told you that part, right? The filmmaker told us. Yeah. Don Camber, Don wonderful yeah. man. Yeah. Um, 90 years old when we interviewed him. So cute. Sadly passed away a few months ago. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, without seeing the film and to see, no. how, see how great he is in it. Um, oh. But he was there and he saw what happened. And they had heard after the second night in uh, Bucharest that they were going to confiscate all the film that the crew had shot in the country and destroy it. And Don said, well, we're not going to let that happen. And, and, and th then unfolds a story that is worthy of an espionage novel or, or TV show. I, w I won't give you all the details. But they had to find a way to get the film out of the country. And using some spy stuff, that's exactly what they did. It was really cool. 
I love that. Who little. was your animator? You had a, you had some great animation in the film. We have a, a great company called Syndrome Studios. They do all of our graphics for all of my films, and they're just terrific. And what we described was what we wanted, but we didn't want animation like The Simpsons sure, or sure. or you'll remember Johnny Quest. You know, mm-hmm. that sort of where, where things barely move. You know, <laughs> it's dark and uh, ominous, but that's right. evocative. Uh, we wanted something dark and ominous, but we wanted it to be somewhat real. So these guys came up with a technique that allowed them to take photographs of our people, animate those with some drawings, and it brings this whole episode to life. You know, I can say something, um, having been in the middle of this entire situation, and then having met John, and what John did, and his his editor and producers and, and, and camera people, is astonishing to me. Because I'm watching something that I lived through, and I'm going, what? Oh, I didn't I had no idea. And I'm, I'm really now no longer in the middle. Now I'm, like you guys, watching it, thinking, how did he find this? This guy. And then I had this observation. If, you, if any of you think your spouses are cheating on you, do not call a detective. Waste of money. Just get John. <laughs> We you know, find stuff. Oh, man, I'll tell you, they I, find I stuff. I think this is a wonderful time. Even if you don't know who Blood, Sweat, and Tears is, you're a little younger for the demographic or whatever. Um, I don't it, think you do need to know who the band is. No, no, no that's what I'm saying. Yeah. You know, it it's doesn't matter. But I will tell well, you. Hope, hopefully you know who the, after you see the movie. Oh, no. Yeah, you, <laughs> you will. And uh, But I think it's so important because right now we have some people on some extreme media that are flirting with... Uh, autocratic governments like Hungary and that whole thing and the cultural exchange between Tucker Carlson and what's his name. Uh, 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 And and so maybe people don't understand. What you need to do is to watch your movie and find out that all is not advertised as it is. I think it's important to see it right now. I think what's, what's kind of interesting for us, Bobby and I have been out promoting the film last couple of weeks. What we have discussed from time to time is the things we see the Republicans doing, whether it's on a national level or what just happened in uh, Tennessee, it's what was going on in those communist countries. They're trying to tell you what you can think. They're trying to tell you what you can say. They're False trying to news. tell you what books you can read. Yeah, they're trying absolutely. to tell you what you can teach your kids and what you can in school. That's communist. They're trying yeah. to scare That's you. People that lived silence. in Europe in the early 30s say this is this is all hauntingly familiar. The way they treated the media, the anti-Semitism, every aspect it's of true. this, we've been there before. You see our film, and I think uh, I hope your listeners and viewers will be struck by uh, the parallels between the two times. Um, we were as polarized in 1970 as we are now. The specifics were a little different, but there was East and West. There was left and right. There was red and blue. There was cancel culture before we knew that was a thing, and that's what happened to our friends in Blood, Sweat, and Tears. And there's all these other things, all these efforts to uh, – Nixon was against dissent. He would have done what those uh, people in, in Tennessee did. They would have thought the black people were a little too uppity and they mm-hmm. had to do something about it. And that's not America or what America is supposed to be. So when you guys were ambushed at the airport with a press conference, was there a, a huddle to sort of decide? Never. Or you just answered the questions? We as a band never had uh – other than being musicians, really. That's, that's what we tried to do best. 
But we never all got together and said, okay, this is going to be our approach to this. This is how we're going to handle the media. We never did any of that. But it was so similar to the Dixie Chicks where all of a sudden there's a step that you take that that now you're in, in, in the headlines for some political perspective that where you're really – we're still musicians. And yes, this is something that we behaved or something that we said out loud, but – my gosh, we're not we're not politicians. We're we're not members of government. So what was the huddle up then afterwards when you saw There wasn't any huddle up. We just went in there after a long flight and they said you got a press conference. And we're going, What do you tell I want to go home? <laughs> you know, like where's our luggage? And they said, Okay, sit there and three of us sat there and that was the first time I absolutely was aware of the fact that that the press had turned on us. But but after that, after that fallout became clear, did you hire a, like a crisis management, anybody to help you? Crisis didn't, didn't exist. Didn't exist. Didn't exist. didn't exist. That's kind of looking at it through the prism of today. Sure. Yeah. Back then, they didn't have spin. They didn't have crisis management. And the thing that struck me about Bobby and his uh, bandmates is they were really candid and honest. They just said what they felt. And that's a rare and I think admirable thing. And they got uh, nailed for it. Yeah, I said this before, but that's kind of what made me mad and really was a great example of the fickleness of the American public's opinion about stuff. I mean, everybody sort of prejudged you before you got off the plane because you had made this trip. If they, State Department-sponsored tour. Yeah, good night. Then right. you're in Nixon's Sammy camp. Davis hugs Richard Nixon. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that was it. Exactly. You know, was Nixon it. was a great hugger, and I just don't <laughs> think we're being fair. <laughs> yeah. But bad piano player. But Fritz, I love what you said that it made you mad. It's what I'm so oh, proud yeah. of with this film. Uh, in addition to the story, what we try to do is make you feel something. Mm -hmm. I mean, this has a lot of emotion in this film. It's yeah. going to make you feel certain things yeah. all the way through it. And that, to me, is the mark of a good well, film. Well, a, a microcosm of that was when uh, veterans would get off the plane coming back from Da Nang Air Force Base, and people would spit on them at the airport. They don't know what this guy's situation was. Maybe he was drafted and not sent there voluntarily, but they just rejected him because he represented something that they didn't like. And I just thought it was very unfair to the band. If, if people would have just been a little more enlightened and maybe sat down and talked to you. So what was this experience like and what did you take away if from it? If people were just a little more enlightened? I know, I'm sorry. It's a big Good if. luck. I know, I know. But I just, I mean, there would have been so much to learn because you guys, not all of you, but some of you were, were radical leftists and anti-government, but you said, listen, what we have here is not perfect, but it's, it's more perfect than everything it else. It beats the crap yeah, out right. of what's going on right. over there. Yeah, that was At for least sure. we're working towards perfect or we're, <laughs> yeah. you know, we're addressing you know, there's a there's a lot of freedom to organize and address the wrongs, and we're, as we continue on on that path, there's just there's a lot that needs to be addressed. But we we try. A lot know. of the uh, historical context in the film was uh, uh, provided by our historian Tim Naftali. Oh yeah, he's on the wonderful. He's man. great. Yeah. You know, he he's knows true. so much about presidential uh, history. He does. He's he's one of the presidential historians yeah. on CNN. Yeah. So you see him all the time. But he. He, uh, we were doing a, Bobby and I were doing a Q&A with him one night when we opened theatrically in New York. And he said, you know, in 1970, only 13% of Americans had traveled outside of the country. Had passports. Had passports. Yeah. And so it kind of speaks to what you were saying, Fritz, in terms of uh, people should have been enlightened, but most of the people had no idea what was outside of our borders. No. Mm -hmm. and, there, and there, of course, 
There was no inter- internet. There was no way to educate yourself unless you went to the library, and usually they had to order a book, the one that you were looking for. It wasn't. It just wasn't that easy to get more information than, one, than was on the news or in the paper, right? you know, unless you really sought it out. So um, what what happens when this happens and now you've got to figure out what's, what's our next best – did anyone say like, well, maybe – if someone interviewed us for Rolling Stone, we could explain, uh, you know, what happened. Or we let's just couldn't. go. Let's just go make more music. We couldn't explain it. That's the whole point. Because our singer, unfortunately, in, as a youth, was a bad, bad kid, and he and he was in jail in Toronto. And you were not supposed to tell that part of the story. No, that's not the part. No, that was that you could find out. The part of the story we couldn't tell is. His green card was taken away. Right. There are many thoughts of how that could have happened. Mine was some right-wing senator said, who the hell is this kid, Canadian son of a bitch, telling mm-hmm. us we should be out of Vietnam. Representing uh, America? Let's, let's investigate him. Okay. And they find a jail record. And they said, okay, let's pull his green card. The green card is what allows you to play in this country. So there's an FBI Number one file. album. Number one album, and we yeah. can't play in the United States. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, they did have files on everybody that was speaking out against the war, especially people in pop culture, because they did, you know, you guys were influencers ahead of any internet influencers. And yeah. so part of what the State Department memo that I read sort of says, hey, you know, we did it. They came back and they said communism's bad. This is awesome because you guys, yeah, yeah. you were exactly. ambassadors of youth culture. But part of the deal, Louise, was that they could not talk about why they had to do the tour and that was the big the big why which nobody knew which prevented them from really being able to express why why they went you bet i I want to talk about woodstock too which which is kind of a sad and i'll tell you why we had melanie on here a, a couple of weeks ago she was fantastic and she performed at woodstock and wasn't in the movie either but she said i wasn't famous i was 22 years old she I was had a skate key i know <laughs> she was 22 years old and was clueless and wasn't doing drugs she didn't even want to be there but so she she, she only has uh, sad feelings about woodstock for not having benefited from being in the movie because nobody knew who she was and didn't want her but you guys were famous you had a number one album but you but talk about your woodstock experience okay here we go <laughs> okay i was not a big pot smoker um actually a lot of us smoked pipes which i forgot about i saw in the movie i said what were we doing well, you, with pipes you played jazz yeah, so. I, guess. <laughs> I love the way you said that you played jazz smoke a pipe get out of here <laughs> so so um to us we're touring and we're playing at the carousel in massachusetts and Diana Ross is there as a guest. She sees us. Liza Minnelli's in the audience. And they come up to us and said, gee, what's going on in New York? I'm going, where, what? Well, there's a concert up, up uh, in New York, up, out of the city, and there's just a lot of people, in the, and, there's, um, and it's out of control. And I'm going, I think that's our next gig. <laughs> and for us, it's the next show. Oh We're not saying it's Woodstock. No right. one knew it, no. was, it, mm-hmm. was a, it was another show. So we said, okay. You'll never get in. We have to do this. We have to do this. Two of the members of Blood, Sweat, and Tears wrote a book. Each of them wrote a book describing how they flew in 
on helicopters. We did not fly. <laughs> we drove in and drove out. I don't know how, where that came from. Other groups did, I'm sure. I think it was the marijuana. Yeah, I'm sure. So, <laughs> so we just drove, speaking, that's coming up. So, so we drive right in. Now it's rained already. We don't see how many people are there. We're backstage. We go straight backstage. And I'm standing on a wooden plank because it's all mud. And they say, hey, man, you okay? I said, no, I'm, I'm fine. Hey, you want a joint? I said, no, I'm, I'm fine. And standing to my right is a row of policemen. In New York, you couldn't smoke pot back then. And I look at them, and, and they got their palms up, like, it's cool. I said, really? <laughs> uh, well, I don't, I don't really smoke. Hey, man, go ahead. Here, here, here's a joint. And, and like, you know, like Clinton, I'm just <laughs> puffing away, right? So then... Hey, man, you want a joint? No, I'm fine. You okay? I said, yeah, yeah. Listen, I'm sorry, there's a delay. Here's a joint. Okay. And I look at the cops again. They're going, and I go, this is unbelievable. Have another joint. Put it up. Hey, you okay? Yeah, no, I'm cool. <laughs> Why'd you have it? I'm going, oh, man, we're an hour and a half late. And they keep giving me these things. And just because the police are standing there, I'm just puffing away on it these things. It was your obligation to do it with a cop. That's exactly how you know, I feel. Pass. Yeah, I'm in Rome. <laughs> anyway, so, so now I see a road manager. Here's what I see. He's walking. He's walking toward me. He's getting closer. Now he comes right up to me in his eyes. If you have a little doll with a little, like pupils, you shake it, you know how they go like that? <laughs> his eyes are looking like that. And he's looking at me, he goes, you're on. <laughs> I went, oh, God, why does he sound like this? And I looked down, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven joints on the ground. I had smoked. The whole thing? It's a miracle you're alive, my friend. No, but it didn't inhale. Okay. okay. Anyway, so so I head, I head toward the stage. And I sit down, and I have no monitor. In other words, I can't hear the other band members because the horns are way over there. Singers a mile and a half in front of me. All, all the amplifiers are going in that direction. And I'm in the back like a complete moron trying to play. And I look behind me, and there's Rogue's gallery of drummers going, check this shit out. I want to see what this guy can do. And I'm sitting there going, oh, this is just awful. And I just, guys, you got you to gotta get me a monitor. I can't hear them. Get me a goddamn... All right. I said, just get it. So, so they climb up. They didn't up. have the earpieces where right. you could hear everything mixed uh, down. Why didn't right. so they amp the drummer? Today. I don't understand. It's so easy. Anyway, so they pull a horn, which is the mid-range. It is the size of this room. And they pull it off the stack that's going out to a half a million 500, people. 500,000 people, yeah. And they put it on some anvil cases, and it's, it's next to me. They didn't change the wiring. So I go, okay, oh! Oh my God. <laughs> and it's unbelievably loud. And I'm sitting there and I go, oh man. And I'm a little on the high side. Sure. And I have my sticks and I just tap my snare. It goes, <laughs> Oh, the feedback. <laughs> <laughs> I'm thinking, man, I'm really good. <laughs> I, I've got this, I'm pretty damn good. So now it's time to play. And I remember one song, it's called Just One Smile. And the way it begins is boom, tambourine. Boom, ch, boom, boom, ch, boom, ch. Sticks, bump, bagadon, boom. Most singers supposed to sing right there. 
<laughs> David's standing behind me. He's, he's taking acid. Oh. And he goes, isn't this a beautiful chart? <laughs> Why don't you... Why don't you sing? Why don't you go out there and sing this beautiful with this great beautiful chart? He goes, okay, and he goes out with his leather bird out. I don't know what the hell was going on, but that's my Woodstock experience. Wow, that should have been in the movie. That was a great monologue about what it's like to play at Woodstock. But what happened? Just so you know, <clears throat> Albert Grossman, one of the great managers mm -hmm. in the history of pop Dylan music, and all those guys, Janis Joplin, mm -hmm. the band. I can mm -hmm. go on, you know. Uh, anyway. Our manager, DeJour, idolized him. And he was standing there. And the deal, now, understand all these other groups, they weren't known or all that famous or popular. It was Hendrix, my band, and certainly Janis Joplin. That was the, we were the headliners of this event. In that moment. And they came to us very early hey, would you do it? Because as soon as we said yes, then it became an event. Mm -hmm. And then they can go to other acts and mm -hmm. say, well, Buzz is doing it, mm -hmm. so, all right. So Albert says, okay, what's the deal? You wanna film this? Yeah, it's gonna be a movie. So what does the star of the movie get paid? It's the way he looked at it, and our, and our manager's standing with him, and they said half of their fee. In our case, it was like $15,000, $7,500 to star in a movie. No. Janice would be like $3,000 to star in a movie. No. And that was it. And John, why don't you tell him who else wasn't in the movie? <clears throat> Creedence Clearwater Revival, Grateful Dead, uh, The Band. Janice Joplin. Janice Joplin. A lot of them weren't. And, and as a result, either they weren't filmed at all, or in the case of Blood, Sweat, and Tears, they shot a few of the songs Bastards. before they ordered the cameras turned off and we found one of them you did it's part of that detective thing that i like so much about my job <laughs> is <clears throat> we found buried at uh, warner brothers was were five songs that blood sweat and tears had performed uh, not all the cameras and so you couldn't really reconstitute all of them but we reconstituted the very first uh, number which was more and more which was a great r&b song and we did a new hd transfer put it together and send the film so for your listeners and viewers that uh, may go to see our film, they will see footage no one has ever seen before. But it must have been poorly planned because Hendrix was on at like six o'clock in the morning, right? It was no, that was one of his performances. Oh, he, he did an anthem in the morning, but he right. had an actual gig. That's why he was paid, you know, seventeen oh, thousand or eighteen thousand dollars. Another thing I'd never heard before that yeah. he was on twice. Yeah. Well, he just did a, you know, like an anthem in the morning. You know, right? His well, band I'm would have been comatose if he had to play I know that, that uh, the making of every documentary has its own journey and sometimes the, the film creates itself as you discover new, new details and can you tell us any of those stories? Sure. Um, I speak to student groups from time to time and their notion of a documentary is you take your cameras, you shoot a lot of stuff, you get into editing and then you figure out what your story is and you try to make something out of it. <clears throat> Maybe that works for cinema verite. I find that very irresponsible. So um, based on what uh, Bobby had told me and what we learned from all the declassified documents, I had a general narrative uh, storyline that, that we were going to follow. And that is what we followed and that's the film you're going to see. But you have to be open to spontaneous things that happen when you're interviewing someone. So Don tells us the story of smuggling the film out. So we had to go there. And 
Um, you talked about Steve before. It was really easy to follow his arc. I didn't know exactly what that was going to be, and you have to be sensitive to that. So I guess, Louise, what I would say is uh, making a documentary is very much like putting a jigsaw puzzle together, except a jigsaw puzzle, those pieces only fit together one way. What mm -hmm. we do, you could fit together 10, 20, 50, 100 ways, and mm -hmm. that's what makes your film good, bad, or ugly. So we had a lot of challenges here in terms of finding footage, in terms of finding photos, in terms of figuring out what exactly happened on the ground there. So we had all of those kinds of challenges. And then on top of that, we had COVID. Right. So we couldn't travel to do interviews for a long time. Uh, David uh, Clayton Thomas lives in Toronto, and we couldn't get into Canada. That was closed to Americans for many, many months. Finally, we had like a two-week window where we could sneak in there. We flew up and we got him, and he's wonderful in the film, as you've seen. Uh, and so we had those kind of challenges. But then what you also have, and you know this from, from your work, is you're in an editing room, and then you've got to fit all these pieces together. And you, then you have music, and then you have your interview sound bites. And how is all this going to come together? And it's a constant process of molding and shaping and getting the narrative to where someone like Fritz is going to say, that made me angry, or I got excited by that, or whatever. If you're making people feel something about your story, as opposed to simply just reciting facts, then you've done your job properly. And it's also a matter of deciding when to reveal facts. Exactly. I mean, like, how, how, you know, how do people best learn? What do they need to know in order to learn the next part? Or and, tease them, leave them at right. a certain point, yeah. and then they're going to want to keep watching to find out what happened. So uh, we decided... Uh, I, I gave away I gave away too much too late uh, uh, about why the band actually had to do the tour. So Bobby came in and he said, "No, I really should like move it up a little bit." Yeah, you hinted at it. What we ended up doing is doing it in three parts. And so hopefully the audience is like they get a little piece of information they want to know a little bit more. They get mm -hmm. another little piece, and at the end, uh, closer to the end, they finally find out exactly everything mm -hmm. that happened. Now there's a lot of photographs in the film, and then there's one point where somebody mentions that if you were in some of these cities, if you were even caught taking a photograph, they would grab your camera and pull the film out of it. So how, who took those photographs and how were they, did the band members, did you guys come home with any photographs? We were, um, I discovered photography in 1969. Wow. I got a couple Nikons uh, and went berserk and just took picture after picture. Steve got into it. So we actually had thousands of photographs of that, that tour, I had one experience. Um, this is not part of the film, if you don't mind. We got on a uh, a bus in um, where was it? Uh, I think Amsterdam, and we get on the bus to go and play, and we you know, got the cameras. And again, and this is going to sound like I'm a horrible drug addict, but I d didn't do drugs. But we get on the bus, and they start handing out the. the, the um, what do you call that? It, it's pot, but marijuana. It's, no, no, but hash. It's pot, hash. <laughs> and they start to. Why are you looking at Fritz, right Bobby? About that. <laughs> Look, with those glasses, there's no way he doesn't know about. Are you kidding me? He's stoned right now. You put those glasses on. You <laughs> already got it. Well, they give me the effect that I'm. Still yeah, stoned. yeah, sure, yeah. of course. Anyway, so, so uh, on the bus, the driver starts handing out hashish, and the guys are going, "Oh yeah," and they, and they, and and. And it was being smoked through a thing that you put through your finger and go like this. It was just insane. So I go, I, I can't. No, no, you got to try it. It's, it's okay. It's, it's legal here. And I went, oh, my God, this is crazy. So I just a little, I just, all I remember is coughing, coughing and coughing and coughing. And I'm driving and all of a sudden I look and I go, oh, what's that? And they stopped the bus 
and there's a statue. And the driver says, that's the Little Mermaid. And I go, what? That's the famous Little Mermaid. And I hope it's Amsterdam or it may have been in Denmark. I'm not sure. <laughs> but there is this little statue. And I go, I got to take a picture. I got to take a So I grab my camera and I run out. I'm in the water and I'm shooting this thing. It's only about this big. <laughs> and I'm shooting it from every angle. And then I get a new roll, 36 shots. Then I shoot some more, another th more of the Little Mermaid. I go back in the bus. Okay, let's go. We're all set. At the end of the tour, we decide to have a party and all of us bring our slides on these carousels, they were called. Mm -hmm. And I just randomly put my stuff in, you know, just, right. And we're all, we're all sitting together. Say, oh, that was beautiful. That was the, the bus ride. Okay, what do you got next? You know, with the little the remote. Oh, that's the Little Mermaid. The Little Mermaid. Seven. The Little Mermaid. <laughs> the Little Mermaid. I had about 70 pictures of the Little Mermaid because I had that hashish. Who knew? Yeah. And then, here's the topper. The guy says, oh, that's not the real one. Well, that was stolen like a week after it came there. No, they've had hundreds of them made. <laughs> So, so what I, did we learn from this? That you need to stay away from pot-oriented Absolutely, products. 100%. And you too, buddy. <laughs> I know. It's we, too late. We have 600 photographs in yeah. this film. A lot of them came from Bobby. A lot of them came from Steve and, and what Steve and his wife took. Um, Lou Soloff had taken a bunch of photos. Uh, he passed away, but his two daughters, Lena and Laura, had a bunch of photos in storage in Albuquerque. We went out there, took a look through, found a bunch of stuff. Um and, uh, and then one of the cameramen who also passed away uh, fairly recently, Izzy Mankowski, very famous DP, he was one of the cameramen on this thing, and he had taken a bunch of photos. So between all of these and the film we found, we were able to adequately tell this story. It, 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 you describing it as a political thriller is a great way because anything other than that sells it short on what it is. It's not a rock doc. It's really great. I want to ask you one other example of judgmental American media and the fickle American uh, attitude about stuff was when you played Caesar's Palace for the first time, you were judged big time as, as a sellout. And I thought to myself, and you, you, this is me being naive, but I thought, what difference does it make what venue you're in? Your fans are going to come and see you play. What difference does it make? For us, well, play at that time, playing Caesar's Palace was Davis. the corniest, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, that was a Rat Pack. Is it before Elvis that you did it? Yeah, I think so, actually. No, it was actually yeah. slightly after, oh, but Elvis okay. wasn't a group. Elvis was a guy. <laughs> yeah. And uh, Well, they had Stephen and Edie Gourmet. They had Wayne Newton, Sinatra. Those were the your fixtures. Your parents' people, yeah. No, but, but those were the fixtures in mm -hmm. Vegas. Mm -hmm. And we were offered it, and I just thought, man, we should do this. Because if we do, and it works, and it would work, it opens the door for the future. You were very of, prophetic because now people do residencies there and do it all the well, time. That was the idea. Yeah. I, I mean, we said, let's open this thing up. Our next gig is the film Maurice, so it's not like we're, we are abandoning our fans. But it was the first time in the, in the history of the band that we had a publicist. We had this new manager. We hired right out of jail, which is... I love that story. <laughs> it's true. Anyway, he was a dark genius, right? Yeah, <laughs> I, I, yeah that, that's exactly a good way. That, that's how to describe him. Anyway, he hires a publicist. We always... It was always natural. We had a guy, Bob Alchula at Columbia Records, was a brilliant 
brilliant publicist, and they'd go through him, and if it worked, it worked, and, and he knew what to do. But So we never had our own publicist. Our manager goes, now it's time for publicist. And this person is still working. I'm not going to give you his name. But in those days, there was one columnist, Earl Wilson, that was syndicated in every single mm-hmm. newspaper in the country. If you want to know what's going on in entertainment, read the Earl Wilson column. So in those days, and probably now, it's, it's publicity by the pound. It's not the quality of it. It's just mm-hmm. how much you get. Mm-hmm. And he figures... I got Earl Wilson. This is fantastic. So the guy, this is what the quote is about us in every single newspaper. Blood, Sweat, and Tears is making more money than Sinatra in Vegas. Wow. (laughs) That's the end of our career right about then. Wow. And anyone who would have had any trepidations about us playing Vegas read that and said, oh, those suckers just sold out. Oh, yeah. But they were ahead of the curve because now, as you said, everybody does it. Mm -hmm. And they were also ahead of the curve on this tour. It took another 12, 13, 14 years. But then McCartney, Paul McCartney, Billy Billy Joel, Elton John, David Mm -hmm. Bowie, Mm -hmm. they're all going behind the iron curve. But these were the first guys to do it. Yeah, but did it have to be a different president in order for it to be okay? I don't think so. I don't know that it mattered. I think it was more where the country was yeah. at that point. I see. Yeah. But we, I will yeah. say this. If we were a band and Trump were the president and he called up and said, I would like you guys, I would have hung up before the end of the yeah. sentence. You know? yeah. I love these guys. They're suing him for playing their songs when he walks out on stage. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> it's great. <laughs> it's terrific. Yeah, I love D. Snyder on Twitter. It's like. <laughs> well, I got to tell you, this is a real. I think it's an, for, for for boomers. It's a great chunk of history that we should all expose ourselves to. It really is, because it's about all the things that we mentioned before. It's a beautiful piece of work. And there's great music in this movie. So yeah, really, really well done, really you guys. Is. You did and, good, and, John. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. We appreciate you so much sharing your story, and I hope it has great success. Thank All you. right, so how can folks right. find it? It's still in theaters, or, and what's the arc? What, what should yes, we, we will be in theaters at least through uh, uh, mid-June, hopefully later. We're now in over 80 theaters and 40 markets, uh, and the number seems to be growing every day, which is nice. Uh, Bobby and I are now uh, rolling up our sleeves and trying to figure out uh, the best streaming deal that we can. So it'll be on a streamer later in the year sometime. We don't know exactly when. Uh, but uh, as you were saying, mm-hmm. Louise, great music. We have a soundtrack that's coming oh, out on wow. uh, April 21st uh, on Omnivore Recordings, and it, it, it's in two parts. There's a CD and digital of all the live tracks that we found of the band playing on the Iron Curtain Why tour. Why is Bobby shaking his head? And that's coming out. And then, and, and Bobby will tell you the story if you have time, is um, for the dramatic portions of the film, where Blood, Sweat, and Tears isn't performing or singing, you know, you have something poignant, dramatic, uh, whimsical, whatever. You need score, original score to do that. And I wanted Bobby to do the score. Yeah, you can tell you did it because I thought, did they get wild tracks out of like a Blood, Sweat, and Tears recording session? Oh, I'm so glad you said it because it sort of sounded it that sounded way. It sounded exactly that way. Mm-hmm. That's why John, being John, went to me and said, I want the same brain yeah. that was involved That's in right. that band to do the score too. And I went, great idea, who are you gonna get? And he just kept going, none of you. And I said, I don't notate music, I don't write, I I sing parts, I know the instrumentation, I produce records, I've been doing that my whole life, but but I don't actually write. I've always had somebody I can uh, uh, work with and say, okay, I'm looking for this or I'm looking for that. 
But and he kept saying no, and then he said <laughs> yes, and then he tried no to get again. out of it. For like two weeks, he's trying to get out of it. Yeah, I got I, a guy. Oh, I commitment just, folk. I I it, no, it is, no, totally. This, then I kept at him, and... So he's bugging the shit out of me about this, and I, and I said, okay, okay, stop. Okay, let me, let me try it. I have a friend uh, who I work with, and he can, he's a great, great musician, and let me just see what he has to say. He said, sure, let's do this together. It's fantastic. And he's the kind of guy that I could, like, for example, uh, a spotting session is when a director and a composer sit together and the director shows that composer, I want something here. I don't want to give away that it gets dramatic. So don't go, that, 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 you know, don't do that. And I need this. And, and, and it's so, it's all written out and, and, and figured out. So the beginning, I see tanks. You know, the Russian tanks come in, and I'm thinking of Prokofiev, who I love. I go, okay, I can, I'm thinking of Lieutenant Kiji Suite. I'm thinking of this, you know, and this instrument. I would like this here and this here. And it, it, it happened. And then and the cra crazy thing is he's a persistent little son of a bitch. Anyway, so, <laughs> so he's on me, and he says, okay, well, we got these audio tapes of the live performances. We have to mix them because there are eight tracks that he discovers again in someone's you know, drawer somewhere. You know, Analog <laughs> tracks? You found eight tracks? We found, uh, the band had a, a portable eight track studio uh, tape machine with them and they recorded all their concerts. Oh my God. And at one time, there were 18 of those tapes. We found five of them and across the five were all but two of the songs that they had performed on the tour, and that's what we uh, provided to Bobby. So John comes in, and I have a friend who's an engineer that I, that I love to work with him, Alan Sides. And I call Alan, I said, let's book some time. We've got not like 80 tracks of things, but we have eight tracks of these songs of a concert we did, mostly of a concert that we did in Poland that we all remember was actually one of the best shows we've ever done. And I said, I can't wait to hear this. So we're in the studio, and and... And there's seven usable tracks. One is just like Simpty Code. So I'm going, and, and it's funny to say, okay, this track has trombone and organ and like what on the same track. <laughs> so we have to eventually mix to stereo and 5.1 for a theater. So, we, so we're working on it. We're EQing some of the instruments so they sound a little better. You know about this stuff. And then all of a sudden I get this out-of-body experience that there's, that I'm a surgeon and I'm operating and another surgeon says, doctor, yes, that's you, you're operating on 50 years ago. Wow. And I start going, holy shit, and I'm listening. Now, humble bragging time, I never liked my drumming. Now, if you, wait, go to any friends of yours that are musicians, professional musicians, and just say to them, you're the greatest. And they will name everyone that inspired them as the greatest. They're never going to say, yeah, I am. Well, I know one that did, Jocko. But everyone else, everyone else was like, uh, no, you got to check out Philly Joe Jones or Tony Williams. Or I mean, that's what I, I, I mean, those are my idols, Elvin Jones, these people. So I never really liked my drumming just because of that. So here I am mixing this kid, 50 years ago, and John was there as witness, the first time I liked my drumming. I said, this kid's good. I would go see this kid. 
I'm know? the same way. I, like after a performance, I can never watch a tape. I have to put a couple of months behind me before right. I'm just like paranoid and judgmental of it. Yeah. But 50 years is a good stretch of time to let your mind cool off Pretty a much. Bit. So in 50 years, I'll call you. <laughs> <laughs> How'd well, you like that podcast? Chris? Let me ask you another thing about your music before we, get, before we get on. I'll love this podcast for a long time. This is yeah. so interesting. But uh, you had the great ability to pick brilliant songs, too. I mean, songs that became anthems, like the Laura Nero picks. Who, who was responsible for that? Well, um, I became the band leader after Al Cooper left. He left because he had kind of taken over the band, which was great. He was a leader, and then he started doing things that I thought weren't going to work for me. He did a song where... It, where none of the other band musicians were on it. It was just him and a string quartet. Going, that doesn't sound like a good bandmate to me. <laughs> and then Randy Brecker was one of the greatest trumpet players on earth. Plays about eight bars on the whole record. And Al's playing everywhere. He's got guitar playing everywhere. I'm going, what? This is not what I had in mind at all. So we had a meeting and we just said, Al, you know, Steve and I, we called a meeting. Al thinks he called a meeting to fire Steve. Which I don't, I don't know where that came from, but we're in the meeting and the whole band's there. And I said, Al, we have to get a real singer. Just judging by how long it it took him just to get the vocals on the record, and if you hear live stuff, you you'll really understand. It, and and I just said that voice is not going on the radio. So once I became the band leader, when he left, he said, I'm the singer or I'm leaving. So he left. And now I have to reorganize the band. And you know, in the movie, it shows how we <laughs> found David and knew. I, I love your it's, excitement in the movie. Yeah, the yeah. guy sang four notes and you said, you're even, hired next. Yeah, well, it was pretty obvious <laughs> how good great. he was, yeah. Oh, my, what a powerful <laughs> you're not, voice. You're not kidding. So, so anyway, so um, at this point, we have to find songs. So I call a band meeting and I said, look, what I'm going to try and do is we're going to try and find songs that all of you like. And they laughed at me. Like, you'll never be able to find a song that everyone likes. So Steve Katz, again, he was my best friend, and we're hanging out every day, has an Eric Satie album on Derham uh, Records, I think. And he's playing Satie. I go, man, this is beautiful. Huh. And I love Billie Holiday, and I'm thinking about, well, God bless the child is one of the greatest songs ever written. So I go to the next band meeting, and I said, okay, guys, I'm going to play some songs. And, and I start with Billie Holiday and they're all go saying well that's not fair I said anyone not like it I mean you said mm -hmm. I, you know that well that's not fair I said okay and then I play the satie and they anyone not like it and they go well that's it's ridiculous of course we like it and I said well why are you bringing this to us I said because we're the only band right now in this configuration that can play this and that was the idea and Laura Nero's song she was she was uh our bass player was living with her at the time. And she was a dear friend of mine, and I love, she was the greatest. I mean, oh she my was goodness. unbelievable. What a writer. Yeah, we I had mean, Felix Cavieri on. He mm -hmm. talked about working with her and so so much reverence. And mm -hmm. Oh, she was amazing. Mm -hmm. Well, she was a, a street, she was a, a Bronx girl. Mm -hmm. Her father tuned pianos and played trumpet. She would sing doo-wop in, in alleys. Yeah, her music is so soulful. Oh, you, completely. You, you can tell. <coughs> Excuse me. She called me one time and she said, uh, Bobby, I said, yes, I, I want to see Fantasia. I said, it's Christmas Eve. I know. It's playing at the little Carnegie and I want to bring a horse and buggy and we'll go. I said, no, we're not going on a horse and buggy. 
we're just gonna go. So I go to 72nd Street and I pick her up, and she she did smoke a little weed, <laughs> and we get to the theater and we're sitting in the back. We get the last two seats and we're sitting way in the back. And Fantasia, if you remember, kind of starts like subdued, and then the Tuscanini goes like this, and it stars Boom. and color breaks out, mm-hmm. and she goes. <laughs> and I'm sitting there and I'm looking at her and she's oh, and I go stop and people are turning around I'm going I'm completely innocent I'm doing I'm the nothing designated driver right? yeah. pretty much yeah. pretty much <clears throat> so so we would find songs and and for us the magic was really the two arrangers in the band Fred Lipsius and Dick Halligan they could write great arrangements and I honestly was not a big fan of the dum 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 dunk, like the Aaron Copeland thing. Mm-hmm. It just it just sounded silly, but we did it, and audiences loved it. Said, and you oh. gave it a jazz twist. I mean, all those lyrics that you chose sort yeah. of lent themselves to horns, and, and it was and actually not lyrics so much as chord changes. Mm. The, the harmony was had to be not obvious simple stuff except an occasional blues david wrote great blues tunes mm-hmm. but but you know it, it was always based on something that you could solo from that you could take a jazz solo from because of the chord changes it would be a little more interesting than the obvious mm. so yeah, yeah. It, it gave you guys all kinds of pathways to go down. That I would, think you were you trying know. to wrap this up about an hour well, ago. Well, yeah, right? but you know, <laughs> no, it's okay. hard with you two. I just, we just like talking. All right, so <laughs> I'm just going to r- read our closing credits. Thank you so much for joining us. We would love to continue this conversation with you on Instagram and Twitter, where we are at Media Path Pod, and on Facebook, where our show page is Media Path Podcast, and our Facebook group is called Media Path with Fritz and Weezy Podcast Community. You can find full video podcast episodes loaded with bonus visual content on our YouTube channel, Media Path Podcast. And you can write to us at mediapathpodcast at gmail.com. And if you enjoy this show, please give us a nice rating in Apple Podcasts and maybe even talk about us on social media. You can sign up for our saucy rag of a newsletter at mediapathpodcast.com. We want to thank our wonderful guests, John Scheinfeld and Bobby Columby. Our team includes Dina Friedman, John Maddox, Bill Filipiak, Thomas Hubble, Mason Brown, Garrett Arch, Nick Broussard, and you. Our theme music is by me and John Maddox. I am Louise Palenker here with Fritz Coleman. Be well and wise, and we will see you along the media path. So where can folks find your film in their town? Best place, uh, Wheezy, is to look at our website, bstdoc.com. And there's a, 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 a icon you can click on for watch, and it will list every theater in America that is showing our film and when and how to buy tickets. 
Fantastic. All right, here come your credits. Thank you so much for joining us. We would love to continue this conversation with you on Instagram and Twitter, where we are at MediaPathPod, and on Facebook, where our show page is MediaPathPodcast, and our Facebook group is MediaPath with Fritz and Wheezy Podcast Community. You can find full video podcast episodes loaded with bonus visual content on our YouTube channel, Media Path Podcast. You can write to us at mediapathpodcast at gmail.com. And if you enjoy this show, please give us a nice rating in Apple Podcasts and talk about us on social media. You can sign up for our saucy rag of a newsletter at mediapathpodcast.com. And we want to thank our wonderful guests, John Scheinfeld and Bobby Colombi. Our team includes Dina Friedman, John Maddox, Bill Filippiak, Thomas Hubble, Mason Brown, Garrett Arch, Nick Broussard, and you. Our theme music is by me and John Maddox. I am Louise Planker here with Fritz Coleman. Be well and wise, and we will see you along the media path.